Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode of Shut Up, Evan is sponsored by my newest obsession, Explorer Cold Brew. As longtime listeners of this pod know, I am a lover of cold brew, but the astronomically high prices at Blank Street and Blue Bottle seek to end me. I've dabbled with bottled cold brews in the past, but never committed because they tend to feel watery. Anyone else feel that way? Until now, Explorer is top shelf cold brew, all specialty grade organic and fair trade coffee, craft brewed in small batches. It comes in four different caffeine levels. So you can have a low calf or a 99% caffeine free, or if you're like me, the full or extra caffeinated. The concentrate is much stronger than ready to drink cold brews, so you just mix a few ounces with as much water or milk as you see fit. Explorer Cold Brew, like this podcast, is proudly LGBTQ plus owned and operated. I mean, gays famously put iced coffee on the map. And this company donates a percentage of all sales to LGBTQ plus focused nonprofits like The Trevor Project. Shut Up Evan listeners can receive 20% off their order by using code ERK20 at checkout. That's ERK20. Go to explorercoldbrew.com to find out why all the girls, gays, and theys are turning to Explorer. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm joined once again by my co-host, Sean Ross. Sean, hello. How are you? Hello, Evan. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Ghostface. Ghostface, you sound queer. I got gay. Ghostface is queer-coded. Queer-coded, certainly. Have we had an explicitly LGBTQ plus ghostface? No, I don't think we have. Not yet. That's a problem. But it seems like we're set up for endless movies at this point, so the sky's the limit. Queer coding can become overt queerness, I don't know, I'm thinking maybe around like 9 or 10 at this point? 9, I think 9. We do have a number of queer characters in the film, which, by the way, we are going to be (laughs) discussing Scream 6, uh, the latest film in the Scream franchise, which, you know, for all things considered, for it being like this massive franchise, it's only six films in, which when you think of other horror franchises, they're typically way deeper. I mean, like, and also, mind you, we only got Scream 5 I think, what, two years ago, if not one year ago? It's very recent. So, like, I think it feels like one year. Yeah, they rushed production on this. So, anyway, all this to say that, like, 
up until, you know, I think 2011 was Scream 4. Um, so for the last over 10 years now, we've been with only four films in one of the most famous film franchises of all time. Scream is back with a vengeance. They even discussed this in Scream 5. Is it a reboot? Is it a sequel? They landed on the term requel in the film, which I don't think has sticking power. I'm not going to call this a requel. But interestingly, Scream 5 was branded as Scream just scream it is technically called scream yes yes which is super odd i hate that but also like there's a new film coming out have you seen this trailer for this new ashley park film joyride haven't seen it run don't walk anyone listening please pause the podcast right now check out the trailer for this new film joyride that's coming out this summer it just premiered at south by southwest when i see joyride all I can think of is the famous Paul Walker, Steve Zahn vehicle, Joyride, yeah. a formative film for male butts on screen. Sometimes I'm sort of like, I just don't understand how we allow films with the same title. There's other instances of this. Do you know any off the top of your head? No. Oh, Crash. Isn't Crash one? Crash, yes. yes. David Cronenberg and then yes. the Trash Crash. Yes. Anyway, so I keep seeing all these like listicles that are doing, um, you know, ranking the screams and I get really confused because the only differentiators that Scream 5 made the A in Scream into a 4. Sorry, you're telling me Scream 5 turned the A into a 4? Yeah. Wait, sorry. Oh, 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 oh. No, wait. S-K-R. Let's see. Wait, sorry. <laughs> Did I say K? <laughs> I can't spell. But no, Scream 5 just says Scream. It is stylized the exact same way as Scream 1. Yeah. Obviously, Scream 1 has a very iconic poster, notably featuring Drew Barrymore and her... Would you consider that a blunt cut, Bob? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it's pretty blunt. Anyway, so on the current uh, Criterion Collection, whatever, it's not Criterion Collection, <laughs> but on the current ranking thing going around, it says Scream. Scream 2, Scream 3, Scream 4 stylized with the A as a 4, and then Scream 5 and Scream 6 are just, say, Scream. But you can tell that Scream 6 is Scream 6 because there's an image of the subway, the New York City subway. They turn part of the M in red. They change the colorway, similar to what they did with Scream 4 with the A turning into a 4. They stylize the M so that... (laughs) It's It's hard to explain the visual. It's that complex. Anyway... It's hard to differentiate the rankings here. But wait, I've gotten ahead of myself here. Sean, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk about Scream. (laughs) Me too. I grew up with Scream. That's what I was going to start by asking, because I feel like for a lot of people, Scream represents something a lot bigger than just a new horror movie in theaters. I think uh, for a lot of queer people, too, in particular, and I obviously think there is a lot of overlap between lovers of horror films and queer people. Um, we can get into why that is, but for a lot of people, I think it's pretty obvious. There's just the 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 nature of the outsiderness of the final girl quite often that I think many of us uh, connect to or envy in some way. I mean, I certainly think the whole conceit of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is born out of the idea of what happens if the final girl fights back. Um, so that's very much uh, in my connection to Buffy. But yeah, so backing up a little bit, tell me... Where is your entry point to the Scream cinematic universe? Oh, well, the entry point is Scream 1. The titular Scream. <laughs> the titular Scream, not to be confused with the titular Scream from last year or the year mm-hmm. before or whenever mm-hmm. that came out. But the original Scream, uh, well, it was just a part of right being a preteen teenager in the late 90s. So I think it was required viewing along with many other teen movies and especially 
the slasher genre, which I think Scream really brought back in a big way or brought back to the mainstream in a big way. And then you, of course, had the great I Know What You Did Last Summer. Uh, A favorite of mine is Urban Legend. Um, It really did spawn a whole new series of these slasher movies for teens that were in the mainstream. But I always saw Scream as like the untouchable. It was the pinnacle of all of these, including like... And and big fan of Scream 2. Scream 3 was the first film I purchased on DVD. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I probably could have picked a better title, but I got Scream 3, and it was like, you know, the novelty of having a DVD. I was going through all of the special features. I watched the commentary. I was very deep into the Scream 3. You know, DVD, the early days of DVD culture should really be spoken about more because there was just so many ways in which like all of the ancillary content that was offered. Uh, I obviously know you you likely remember the director's uh, commentary feature that was really popular for a while Mm -hmm. until they were like, this is really chaotic figuring out when to talk and when to listen. And then also like, unless you are the person watching it are overly familiar with the content. Sometimes it's like they're explaining something that happened, but you don't actually know the thing that that's actually taking place on film because you can't hear it. Um, There was always that, that weirdness. Whereas today I think you would just do a director's commentary with them watching the film and record it as a podcast. So you're not actually hearing the film. This is completely off topic, but do you know with the early seasons of survivor, for example, Survivor All-Stars, there is a commentary feature where you can watch the episodes with the commentary from Jeff Probst, Tina Wesson, Rudy Bosch talking about the episodes. I did know this, or rather I'd heard this, but I think we should pause this podcast right now sorry. and listen. No, no, I'm serious. No, no, the opposite of sorry. Like, I'm... Yeah, I'm kind of like, wait, we're talking about Scream when we could be talking about the season one Survivor Borneo commentary. It's truly wild. No, but yeah, I mean, it really, there was a time when this was, I think a lot of these people making films were like, hey, there's this whole new way for us to revisit these things with fresh eyes, offer fans insight into, you know, how the sauce was made. And it was super exciting for some time. Mm Mm-hmm. And yes, like you, I too, I own Scream 3 on DVD. Retroactively, once they released Scream 1 and Scream 2, I was lapping it up. And also worth noting, yeah, like as you said, this really revitalized this genre that had kind of become very direct to VHS for a while, especially in the the 80s and the early 90s. And I think that what Wes Craven did, especially with the first film, was sort of subvert people's expectations of what this genre could look like and say, okay, well, what if you know who the killer is and you know he's coming after you and there's nothing you can do about it? Because I think in the beginning it was sort of like, well, we can we can run, we can hide. You know, you know that was the common trope. He's chasing after you. You got to run. And with this film, it sort of set up this idea that like, what happens when you can't run? Um, and that's why we have this, you know, this franchise now with which uh, it's all about uh, fighting back, figuring out who Ghostface is uh, or the many people that Ghostface is. Are, am, whatever. I am not Ghostface. Um, and you know, ultimately figuring out whether or not you can kill him or her or them. Have we had a non-binary ghostface? Not yet. So Scream 9, queer, Scream 10, non-binary. Maybe. 
I like this direction that we're they're putting on it. Now, before we get into our discussion, let's talk etiquette, right? Because I think there's an increasing conversation uh, on the internet, not specific to Scream, but in general. I know that uh, we face this a lot, we being fans of the White Lotus, being like, when can we talk about the White Lotus? Uh, no, mm-hmm. actually, specifically you and I, uh, with our podcast, when we were mm-hmm. recapping the final episodes, it was sort of like, at what point does the show become fair game to talk about in all of its intricacies, you know? I think it's fair when they're, when you're dealing with a Scream film in particular, or as was the case in the White Lotus finale, a character death, it makes more sense that there's some preciousness about it because these things have these giant reveals. And especially when it comes to Scream, part of the big thing that many people go to these films for is that big moment when the mask comes off. Uh, I feel, though, we are recording this. Scream has been out in theaters now for eight days. By the time you're hearing this, I think it'll be 9, 10, 11, 11 if if the math is mathing. And I feel like uh, we can and will spoil it. But for those of you that have not seen it yet, I would say go see it. Um, I would also say go see this movie in theaters. I feel like this movie is one of those films that is deeply impacted by the theater-going experience Mm -hmm. and getting to have your fellow theater-goers' reactions uh, enhance or uh, impact your own response to the film. I think that's true of a lot of horror films, I think especially with Scream, because it has such a devout and excitable fan base, myself among them. And I think there was something about this film which we'll get into, but some of my apathy about the franchise uh, subsided, and I think that things that I otherwise would have been more critical of had I watched this at home, I think having the entire theater come alive in certain moments really got me. Uh, They got me, Gail, and I I found myself uh, really feeling it. So we will be spoiling, but let me ask you, like, what is your thoughts on spoiler etiquette in 2023? Because I know you messaged me ahead of today and you said, are we spoiling? You know, it is very much a question. Well, I think that it's all about context and warning. And this is a spoiler warning. If you haven't seen it, you were going to want to skip this part of the podcast, like straight up, unless you just don't care. Uh, but I think it's all about context. Jermit Mulroney's ghost face. Julia Roberts, the 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 my best friend's wedding, tit, not titular. I'm really obsessed with the word titular, and it seldom applies when I use it. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Well, the groom of the titular wedding in my best friend's wedding is the murderer in Scream Six. Yeah. Uh, okay. The uh, eldest son of the titular family Stone is the murderer in Scream 6, Everett Stone. The other two murderers, I know that one of them's name, I believe, is Jack Champion, and I believe he isn't known for Avatar. Ah, yes, yes, you're right. Have not and will not be seeing, but yeah, apparently that's a thing. And then the actress that plays the third ghost face, I don't know her name. I don't know her character name. I don't know the actor's name. Her character name is Bailey, I think. Bailey. And the discernible characteristic that the filmmakers want you to know is that Bailey is a slut. Yeah. Um, relatable. Yeah, relatable, <laughs> but, but but a self-empowered slut. Uh-huh. And I think, so that's the sort of like 2023 lens on it. Uh, okay, spoiler etiquette. I would say that <laughs> yeah, it's all spoiler. about context because I feel like if there is something, particularly with TV, I think there's different rules for TV and film. With TV, if something is airing, if you go on Twitter, you're going to get spoiled and you need to know that. Okay, full stop. I think Twitter is fair game to live tweet TV. And 
Myself personally, I would take a more conservative approach to live tweeting where I wouldn't want to give away the ending of something or a character death or a vote out on a reality show. I would try to withhold that for like at least 14 hours. And But I understand that others won't. And I think everybody else needs to understand that too. I think that with film... You got to be really, really careful. And I will get pissed off at somebody for spoiling an eight-year-old movie for me. Um, I think you you have to not assume that everybody has seen everything that you've seen. And especially if it's something you've enjoyed and you want somebody else to enjoy, you know, keep the secret. Like say, oh, preface some. Have you seen this? Have you seen this movie? Okay, then I won't say anything. Um, if it's something that's like uh, part of pop culture, like, yeah, Jack dies in the Titanic, right? We know that. That's okay. Or Gwyneth Paltrow's head is in the box at the end of Seven. Like that, it's part of Sean. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> pop culture. Um, but I think for virtually everything else, especially like a scream killer, you got to chill a little bit. What I wish is that more people that were doing any kind of discussion about the film, whether that be, you know, reviews of the film or just discussions on podcasts like ours, I wish that they would do two-parters. I wish that there was the spoiler-free version of things and then the spoiler-driven because Mm. there's this podcast I love called Pop Culture Happy Hour that NPR does, and it's fantastic. And they did an episode on Scream 6, and it was spoiler-free. And as a result, I feel like they weren't able to get into really important conversations about the Scream film that are contingent on talking about the reveal of this film because there's lots of ways that, yes, the reveal happens at the end, but all of the the web is weaved, as they say, throughout the film. So part of me was craving, it felt very much like a part one conversation that needed a part two. So I am all for spoiler-free content. But to your point, it's like I think that when you are making spoiler content, you need to be explicit about the fact that you are about to spoil. Um... But I think it's important to make that part of any discussion in which if you're first talking about it spoiler-free, it feels like an unfinished sentence to then not discuss it um, after some time. I will give credit to the RuPaul's Drag Race social media accounts and their approach to this because, you know, they're dealing with an eliminated queen every week. And so they do this thing on Instagram, I know, where they do a video and it has a countdown. I think it's like five, four, three, two, one, and it says spoiler alert on it. And so it's basically like it gives anyone who's on Instagram and casually scrolling enough time to you know, double back because people try and use a similar tactic on Twitter by opening by saying spoiler, but that's a little harder because the brain doesn't often have enough time because instinctually when you're on Twitter, I don't know about you, but for me, it's like I, I'm there to read and read quickly. Um, so sometimes I find myself, the words spoiler ahead, unfortunately, don't deter me. Maybe some people have more wherewithal. I do not. Um, so I appreciate Instagram and, and uh, RuPaul's Drag Race in that sense. But like we said, we are going to be spoiling. One thing that is uh, that many were hoping would end up being a spoiler that ended up not being one was the hope that Nev Campbell would be in this film. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, you and I were discussing Scream 6 before you had seen the film on our other podcast, Drop Your Buffs. You said that you thought you had read something saying that 
Nev Campbell, whose contract negotiations had broken down early on in pre-production, um, which ultimately led to her announcing the fact that she would not be returning as Sydney Prescott. Uh, and for those that don't know, Sydney is the centerpiece of Scream, and she has been the focal point of the first four Scream films, and then played a minor uh, (parentheses two minor question mark) and (parentheses role in Scream Five. She announced that she was not coming back, and so you thought that you'd read an article, which, you know what, to your credit, I bet you, you read a tweet from someone that was just Mm. sharing uh, what they wanted to believe to be the case. So I actually, I do believe you saw these words somewhere. (laughs) Thank you. Because many people were hoping that Nev Campbell was secretly a part of this film and that it was a stunt, that they had released this information saying our beloved Nev is not coming back because, again, it's like, how do you get Courtney Cox, who... Courtney Cox is a very, very wealthy person and can ask for a lot of money. One would think, how do you reach a contract negotiation with Courtney but not Nev? They seem kind of like they would be earning an equal payday, right? Well, I have to wonder if they value Courtney Cox more because she is a bigger star. And so they were paying Courtney Cox more than they were willing to pay Nev Campbell. That unfortunately makes sense. So... Spoiler to say that Nev Campbell does not show up in this film. Nev Campbell is not a part of this film. Nev Campbell has not spoken, to my knowledge, about this film since making her original statement, which one can't know why that is. I would interpret that in one of two ways. I think either she wants to wipe her hands clean of what she sees as a uh, not great situation that she would rather put in the rear view. She did this for five movies. If they can't meet her rate, they can't meet her rate. And I I'm, think she might want to um, keep her gaze forward towards other opportunities that are coming her way. Or we are being primed for Sydney's return in a future Scream film which could very well be because this Scream film broke box office records for Scream films, made a lot of money, and it's good reason to believe that Scream 7 can make even more. And with more anticipated profit comes the very likelihood of increased budget, which could then change the conversation around Nev. I do want to add, interestingly, I was someone who was, like, not happy that Nev was not coming back to the film. Um, And then... I saw Scream 6, I felt so amped up on it, that thing in my mind that was sort of like saying like, I will not like this thing out of principle, that unfortunately like left my mind because I was so high on the film. And I thought that in the lead up to this film coming out, there was going to be more conversation about the star of this film not being a part of it, but also like the very unceremonious exit because it makes it sound like from what we know, that Nev Campbell would be in this film, that like Nev Campbell had every intention to do another Scream film, that they simply were not able to meet her quota. And it's especially unfortunate considering this is a franchise. The reason it is a franchise, the reason franchises exist is because they tend to make a lot of money. So there was a guaranteed return on investment with Nev, whether the producers or the powers that be thought that that amount was was you know in line with what Nev thought her amount was perhaps not but it just something about the whole situation remains odd um how do you feel having seen the film knowing now that Sydney Prescott is mentioned but not seen I don't like it it doesn't sit well with me I think that Sydney is so key to Scream as a franchise and as you said was criminally underutilized in Scream 5. It's one of the reasons 
Scream 5 is my least favorite Scream movie. If I was just going into this blind, watching this franchise, I would think, wow, they really don't care about this character, Sydney Prescott, anymore. They have tossed her to the side. It was clear in 5 that they didn't really care about her. And here in 6, she is given like a half-hearted mention. And I feel like it's a mistake. I really feel like it's a mistake because... Like you look at Halloween and like how Laurie Strode pulls that entire franchise together. And yes, there's been moments, right? There's been moments in the history where she takes a back seat. Or dies, but comes back. <laughs> yeah. Were those good moments for the franchise? I don't think so, right? And so why are we doing that with Scream? I think that they're putting a lot of stock into their new cast the so-called core four. Look, I know it made a lot of money and I know people really enjoy this movie. I don't think the core four has an ounce of the charisma that Nev Campbell had in the original trilogy. I absolutely agree with you. I think that there's something so singular about Sidney Prescott as a character. She's very hard to compare to other characters in terms of her disposition, like how she exists in this world. And I think fans feel a protective nature around this final girl and feeling like because of, I don't want to say disrespect in Scream 5, but not making her the centerpiece of Scream 5. Scream 5 very much felt like here's the new cast and we're going to appease legacy fans of this franchise by inserting original cast members but having no real important role i mean they basically brought david arquette as dewey back for the sole reason of Mm -hmm. wanting to kill a legacy character um the other thing i will always say about sydney prescott as a character is i feel like they never knew what to do with her after three because it was such a perfect trilogy in terms of not quality of film uh but in terms of her arc for those that uh either don't remember (laughs) or just need a refresher the third film ends sydney finds out that her brother is ghostface i mean i think unarguably the least iconic Ghostface. Yeah, she finds out it's her brother, uh-huh. kills him. Um, so he's gone. And so it, there's this shot of her. She's at her home and the wind blows the door open. And rather than close the door, Sydney's impulse is to go and close it and double bolt it and all the things that Sydney knows to do. But she has this moment where she, I think it's like a half smile, the script might say. Um, and she decides to leave the door open, right? And it's just <laughs> such a perfect ending to yeah. Sydney, right? It's this idea that like the thing that has brought her so much torment, she is not going to let it rule how she moves forward in this world. And then all of a sudden she's back for four and it's like, wait, so everything that we like, that great moment is sort of uh, just crushed. And then with Scream 5, it's like, girl, why are you coming back to this town? Like, if you hear that Ghostface is somewhere, you need to not be there. You don't go to Ghostface. They really wanted to make her the girl who, I get the instinct, right? She's not afraid of the fight. That's great. That's very Sydney. I don't think Sydney makes the choice to go to where the fight is. That felt a little bit like that's not the Sydney that I know. I think what was great about Sydney in three was all of those instincts that she had developed because Scream is all about subverting the genre, right? And in the genre, and even in Screams one and two, Sydney and many of the other victims uh, of Ghostface or 
would-be victims of Ghostface made bad decisions. Don't go upstairs or like lock that door or get out of the house, right? Like they're they're may always making the wrong decision. And here, Sydney had learned from that, and now this character is smart enough to be standing toe to toe with Ghostface, and you feel confident that. Yeah, even if she does get killed, she's going to put up a damn good fight. And so that was really nice. And what I would have liked to have seen moving forward from that, and granted, I really liked Scream 4, uh, but what I would have liked to have seen moving forward from that was that that person still exists, that really headstrong, smart, rational audience figure. We can see ourselves in her, and she is making the moves we want her to make. Uh that there is a ghost face chasing her down who is as good as her, right? Like a, an equal foe. Not that she's dumbing herself down to deal with like teenage killers again. Right. Um, I think that that would have been an, inter- an interesting direction for a requel. Right. But it's challenging then to introduce a character that would have those motivations that you just explained that we would understand to have not met previously if it's someone that knows sydney this well yeah, i agree yeah I, I agree with you i think that would be super exciting it's like it's how do you do that but no i love like where your mind goes with this um yeah i mean i i think that they dead-ended i think they seem to know it and so i do think that like nev not being a part of this film is not the problem the problem is why she is not a part of this film like i definitely think this franchise can go on without sydney it's just the manner in which it happened that i think many of us remain sort of unsettled on but i think that ultimately do i want her in scream seven yes out of my love for her and yes if she's getting the money that she's owed but it will never sit right that this film this super successful film that they had good reason to believe was going to be successful couldn't pony up whatever her worth was especially having done so for scream 5 a year or two we're, we're not going to look it up either a year or two um that they were able to do it then and said something shifted and they couldn't do it now it just doesn't really make sense can i tell you a wild thought that i had while watching scream 6 because in my mind, I'm waiting for Nev Campbell to show up because I think that I've read this thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, she's going to make a surprise appearance. And so in the opening sequence, which I thought was really great uh, with Samara weaving and then the killer reveal, right? So we get a killer reveal in the opening sequence. We don't know who this guy is, right? As far as I'm aware. And uh, he goes back to his apartment and calls his partner, who is, you know, an, another ghost face in training. And then that ghost face shows up and is like, I killed your actual partner. You don't know who I am. And now I'm killing you. And in my mind, and I know this is completely crazy of me, but I thought, oh my God, it's Nev Campbell killing would be ghost faces. <laughs> like she snapped and she's like, this is, I'm not letting this happen again. Scream 6.5. So, It seems to be the general consensus that I have read, and I haven't gone on Rotten Tomatoes or anything like that, but I I feel like people are really hyped on Scream 6. Mm -hmm. I will say I felt people were hyped on Scream 5 as well, but this seems to be the consensus that I'm seeing from a lot of people online when they're doing their rankings is that Scream 6 tends to fall in people's number three slot. Mm -hmm. We can get into where we we come down on that later, but that's been my assessment of it. I was really, really hype coming out of the film. Um, I, I think I gave it an 8.5 out of 10. You did. On at Evan Ross Katz Instagram stories. Um, I would lower that now, uh, eight days later, to an eight 
Um, but I'm still, I still really like this film, but I definitely think there are some things that don't work about it, most notably who the killers are um, and their lack of motive, I think just does not work. And I think that we've sort of had this issue since beginning with Scream 3, um, where all of a sudden it's like, Sydney's got a brother, but we've never heard about him. And he wants, okay, he's raising an arm, but... Yeah, no, no, because I, I I see where you're coming from, and I know all of the problems of Scream 3, and yes, there's a bias thing going on in my head because it was my first DVD, and so it does have a special place in my heart and nostalgia, but at least they explained that. Yes, it was retroactive continuity that all of a sudden she has a brother, mm-hmm. but it I thought made sense to some degree, right? Like it did tie into her family drama and they laid out the details and I thought I could, I could buy it. I can buy it. This not so much. I think that the plot holes are far too many and far too large to make sense. And you know, as we're talking right now, and I'm like, I was about to add another point, and I'm like, you're about to make your second negative point without making a positive point, and you're giving it an eight. So let's, I might drop down to a 7.5. We'll see where we net out by the end. But I did, I think 7.5 comes from the fact that I had a blast seeing this. Yes. Loved talking about it, reading about it, hearing about it seeing people's thoughts on where they think the franchise will go, reading larger pieces about this franchise and its place within horror cinema. This is such a fun fandom. It is like they they get, like I said, like they get really excited by it. And, and I feel like it has such a broad fandom. Um, I just feel like it, it, it touches down on, on so many things that I love. And I think for a lot of gay people, going back to that conversation from earlier, when you think about people like uh, Rose McGowan and, and Sarah Michelle, Michelle Geller and Jada Pinkett Smith and Heather Graham and Parker Posey, Elise Neal, Portia de Rossi, Rebecca Gayhart. I mean, like it's it's. Uh, do any other Drew Barrymore? Do any others come to mind that I'm missing off the top of my head? There, we're missing somebody. If if I'm not thinking of you, I love you. Uh, but no, there's just all of these women that are associated with this film at the center of all of that. Obviously, Nev Campbell, who we love. Who's the iconic sister of Randy, who is also in the Princess Diaries? Heather Matazzaro? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. We're forgetting about Laurie Metcalf. Oh, queen. God. Not good. Forgetting about Laurie Metcalf. I feel like that's like, takes a pin out of our gay letter person jacket. (laughs) Is Jenny McCarthy in Scream 3? Jenny McCarthy is in Scream 3. And I think, I'm going to check this right now. I think Scary Movie 4. And the reason that I know this, and I could be wrong as as I'm saying I know this, is because (laughs) I went back and rewatched this Pamela Anderson scene that opens the film. I went back and rewatched it after watching her documentary. Let's see. It's Scary Movie 3. But she is in Scream 3. Wait, so Jenny McCarthy is a part of the Scream universe, the Scary Movie universe, and the View universe. First View co-host to be in Scream. Mm. Who else could... I mean, Whoopi is an obvious choice. But I'd like to go with a not obvious choice. I think Raven Simonier Mm. would be really fun. Nicole Mm -hmm. Wallace, I feel like, would just kick some ass. Nicole Wallace would be a great ghost face. I mean, Michelle. Michelle could be the new centerpiece of wherever this franchise is heading, but... Elizabeth Hasselbeck oh. in Scream 7. You want to talk about a final girl? And like, honestly, like we're making a joke right now, but like, actually imagine it. 
She's a survivor. And you know that, like, you give her a good script, she will mark it up. There will be notes. <laughs> Post-it notes everywhere. Exactly. It's like Tim Hasselbeck and the kids all gather around after church, and, like, she passes around her, like, laminated copies of the script, and they do line readings. It doesn't seem very Christian, though. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It's like, you know how the White Lotus 3 is exploring religion? It's like, Do I know that? Excuse me. White Lotus 3 is going to be themed around religion. And so it'd be funny if Scream sort of took on a similar principle and it's like every movie like takes on a different theme. It's like how Halloween became about trauma, but like that was not something mm-hmm. that like became the part of the film. It's like, you know, sort of subvert. The next subversion could be a subversion of genre. Mm-hmm. Even though Halloween unto itself is a subversion of the horror genre. <laughs> but this is like deep subversion. Anyway, okay. So, so, so I... Really enjoyed the film. I think more than anything, like I said, I like the energy and I felt like these actors who I was not vibing with in Scream 5, four of whom return, Melissa Barrera, Jenna Ortega, Mason Gooding, and Jasmine Savoy Brown, I wasn't feeling like I needed more time with them and I do feel like all four of them clicked into their characters a little bit more and I think that is a combination of them becoming uh, more accustomed to on-screen acting and becoming... better better actors I also think that's the fact that the characters themselves were written with a little bit more of a sharpness that was missing in the fifth one there was this feeling I had of like every character just being an amalgamation of like a scream character like it just felt like these were all sort of like characters we'd seen in past films that were just sort of like rendered a little bit differently and then recast with new names. Um, This one, I sort of understood a little bit more of the POVs and the motives. And I have to say too, like Jasmine Savoy Brown, who I thought was the standout of five, I think again is the standout amongst the four of them. But I also feel like I understood that Mason Gooding character a bit more in six and like accepted him as a himbo. Whereas in five, I didn't understand who they were trying to have him be. Did I need that like romantic moment between him and Jenna Ortega? I would have loved if like the core four could have been like four friends and not for like Mm. a little bit romances. But I also understand there's something very nineties about that. Um, Anyway, 7.5 out of 10. Sean, where, and we haven't had this conversation yet. I'm pretty sure you're not going to go above my 7.5 here. Uh, But where do you come down on Scream 6? I think I've landed on a solid Scream 6. (laughs) A (laughs) 6. I think I give it a 5 overall, and I bump it up to a 6 because of David the Hot Neighbor. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's not that I didn't enjoy it. Obviously, I had so much fun. I think it's a really fun movie, as we said, to go see in theaters. Lots of fun. Exactly what I expected, more or less. But for me, I think that we are verging into some territory where I'm left with a lot of questions that I wasn't necessarily left with in, say, Scream 1 and 2, which I think were much tighter films. I think we're stretching a lot of what killers are getting away with. I think, for example, of the uh, body swap, right, that uh, the detective swapped in. A dead body and put prosthetics on it and like yeah. the morgue never noticed that <laughs> the morgue is like this is real <laughs> yeah uh, and it's like well a grieving father can get away with a lot like i, I don't know about yeah. that and then that i mean more broadly speaking that our our killer the detective i i and i'm not trying to toot my own horn i literally don't give a shit about this kind of stuff i guessed that he was the killer really early in the movie because 
it made no sense that he was on the case to begin with because it was about some something that happened at his daughter's apartment with his daughter's roommate i just thought there's ov- there's even before the daughter's involved there's a conflict of interest that just doesn't make any sense to me and then of course once we find out about the shrine to previous killers well who has access there's two characters that have access to police evidence and they're the detective or Kirby. And I was never going to buy that Kirby, a former victim of a ghost face, became ghost face. And so I thought that that was quite predictable. Now, did I see the daughter come, like, coming back from the dead? No. Did I see the son? No. But uh, anyways, I, yeah, there were some some big plot holes in the in the rationale of like of how they were duping us. And yet I still feel like I determined who the killer was because of some of the obvious question marks can i add that i too figured out it was him right away and again similar to you this is not a pat on the back and by any measure it's more a criticism of the film um which is to say he has that line early on when he offers to take himself off the case and my first instinct was oh then he must not be the killer because he's like he's presenting an out for them which then because it's scream and it's a film about subversion Mm -hmm. i immediately went oh Mm -hmm. no He's definitely the killer. The writers attempt to actually put the the scent off of him, put a bigger scent on him, in which I not only knew he was the killer, but I was sure he was the killer. And I'm not saying it's like, again, I as you've already heard, I can think things with great conviction and be wrong very easily. So... But I, I do think there was something about that. And not to mention, too, how underdeveloped the other characters were. So, for instance, there's... Uh, the oh no he, oh my god he does become one of the killers funny enough the jack champion character all right well never mind <laughs> i was about to say that one guy he didn't seem at all like the killer and he was the killer but no yeah <laughs> but i will say okay to, then to give the positive i think that the kill sequences were incredible i thought they were really fun and particularly after bailey's quote-unquote death and uh the attack in the apartment when they have to crawl across a ladder that is many stories up in between an alleyway between two buildings. I thought that was really effective and I really liked it. And I will remember that as a good scream kill sequence. Ditto for the chase in Gail's apartment. Yeah. Oh my God. That was really fun. I feel like Courtney Cox was having a good time making this film which i feel like showed yeah. um the sequence with the ladder i agree with you i thought it was like really exhilarating it was really fresh i like the way her body moved on the ladder it felt very practical yeah. and not like special effects driven which made it all the scarier yes what i didn't understand was where are jenna ortega and mason gooding throughout all of this they run out of the apartment and they see that melissa barrera and jasmine savoy brown are not with them and so what was going on during that time? That whole sequence when Ghostface is pounding on the door trying to get in, they know that their friends are still up there. Why wouldn't they come and at least attempt to like get his him off their scent? I don't know. I had a difficult... I mean, again, I'm 
this is zooming in on something that's like, yeah, there's a lot of these instances <laughs> if you really choose to look at it. But that one bothered me. But I also agree with you. Like, I like that scene. Um, it would have been more fun to give that death to a more consequential character mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that was Jasmine Savoy Brown's girlfriend who's introduced in this film and given very little to do besides fawn over Jasmine Savoy Brown, which I understand why one would do that. Um, but her death kind of felt a little bit meaningless. Um, also, to your point uh, about uh, the impracticalities of some of the deaths, uh, there's also that stabbing scene that takes place on the subway with Jasmine Savoy Brown. Sure, you have the one drunk guy who's like half asleep, but like, was everyone in that vicinity just unaware that a woman... And also, when you're being brutally stabbed... I would imagine, never happened to me, but I would imagine if you cover my mouth, I'll still be able to let out some noises. Uh-huh. Like the fact that she was just like silently being killed in in a vehicle that it's not known for being like really loud because you know, which Scream movie is it where someone is killed right in front of everybody else and no one notices? I wanted to say two with uh, the opening with um, Jada Pinkett Smith. Oh yeah, it is. Okay, yeah. Uh, okay, so Subway, I'm like, they're trying to attempt the same thing, but I just, again, it didn't have the finesse of two where I'm like, oh my God, this is so brutal because I understand how it is happening. Uh, but, and I think they could have done it. Like they could have done it. It could have been a single quick stab mm-hmm. to the stomach and walk away or do it right as we're going into a station, right? Mm-hmm. And then walk away. Like There was a lot of ways to do it, but they really were like, okay, you're going to get stabbed like seven times yes. here and he's going to follow you to the ground. And surely somebody notices that. And then she's going to survive on top of it all. <laughs> Which that's its own conversation because yeah, no one dies in Scream 6. Uh, It is a survivor's tale. I feel like they could get away. There are three crazy instances in which you have Mason Gooding, Jasmine Savoy Brown, and Gail, uh, Courtney Cox. I know how I love to waffle between actor names and character names. Um, Mm -hmm. You have all three of them surviving, um, all three of which are completely impractical because they were brutally stabbed by Ghostface multiple Mm -hmm. times. Um, In uh, the instance of Mason Gooding's character, he was stabbed by multiple Ghostfaces multiple times. And yet at the end, it's just sort of like Core 4 plus Gail. Oh, wait, Kirby! I forgot about Kirby also survives. Uh-huh. Okay, so you have four characters survive that had no business surviving, um, but that seems to just certainly be okay. Um, also, sorry, one thing to go back to the subway murder real quick, or excuse me, the non-murder on the subway, that, like, the lights continuing to flicker, that's just, like, not something that happens on the subway. I've had instances where I'll go out for a second, but, like, it doesn't keep going in and out, and I know I'm really zooming in here, but if you're going to have your movie take place in New York City film it in New York City. In addition to that, I want what little depictions we actually had of New York City um, to be done right. And I just feel like that was an instance of like, I want it to feel like what it feels like to actually ride the subway in New York. But I just don't think it's like one of those situations where like no one's paying attention to anyone and the lights go out. It was giving me Gotham City and I just was like, this is not New York. And I feel like isn't the whole point of setting it in New York to have it feel like what would happen if this person was put in this setting. And unfortunately, the setting felt like it went by the wayside. Yeah, and I think that they could have done something really, really fun here if they did film it in New York instead of in Montreal. And they could have done sort of a Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, like lean into the camp of it, 
go to iconic locations, have Ghostface throw somebody off the top of the Empire State Building. Like there are there are so many potential options for really fun things you could do. And they didn't do anything because they didn't have access to the location. A great instance of this is you have that death that takes place early on at the bodega, um, which mm-hmm. is pretty scary. Uh, that's like I, I really did like that scene and I felt like it set the tone of the film early on. But that bodega was just sort of like any bodega. And imagine if that scene took place at like Katz's Deli. Not the titular cats. <laughs> the titular cats. Um, imagine how like crazy that would have been is like they're slinging pastrami to have Ghostface like, you know, running through. Like grab the knife from the deli worker. Come on. Like it was so good. <laughs> and I just feel like this film did not have the capability to do it. And yet... That brings us to the question of, I mean, this film did extremely well. It was rushed into production after Scream 5 because of the success of Scream 5. This film did even better, and we're only eight days in. It is a true hit, Um, which means that as expected, we are going to get a Scream 7, but I imagine that we will get a Scream 7 sooner rather than later um, Mm -hmm. in the attempt to capitalize on the possibilities here. Where do you want to see this franchise go? Because I think, interestingly, you have these first three films, which are very much a trilogy. You have this fourth film that was built to be a new trilogy, and then because of the film's lack of success, because of Wes Craven's death, we were no longer able to pick up the franchise. And so when these new guys came along and re-requeled, rebooted, whatever term we're not landing on, they were like, this is new, which is why I think they chose the title Scream versus Scream 5, but we can we already got into why that makes no sense, but we understand the intention. Mm-hmm. You tell me, where do we go from here? Well, I think that the lack of deaths among the core four in 5, that's one way to subvert the genre, right? Like, so that that is Scream subverting itself, which I think that it actually didn't do enough of. I think that's really the only instance that it did do this in this film um, because everything else was more or less a cookie-cutter uh slasher movie which scream reinvigorated right they weren't doing that they weren't doing the uh, ingenuity that they had brought to the table in scream one right they, they they haven't managed to recapture that fun in this new reboot trilogy if that's what this is and so i think they need to figure out a way to play with the formula a little bit like i said i was really excited that we got a killer reveal up front in this movie and then of course that killer is guilt by the unknown killer and i think that maybe a film like from the killer's point of view would subvert the genre right um I think that they, I just really need to see something different. Uh, And I need to see some of these core four get killed off, honestly, because at this point they feel completely invincible. And that's not a great place to be as an, uh, for an audience member to feel like I know that these people can't die. I also want to see the legacy characters utilized a little bit better, better. I mean, like Gail Weathers had two scenes, three scenes, maybe. And uh, only one of them was significant. I also felt like her character was not exactly uh, 
respected is maybe the word that comes to mind because the fact that she shows up as a slimy journalist again outside to interview them didn't make any sense to me because I think that like let's give Gail some more respect she's gone through a lot she lost Dewey in Scream 5 like I'm sure that she's not this insensitive anymore so yeah let's show some respect to our OGs let's subvert the genre again and let's start killing these core four off. What do you think about this? Scream 7 opens at dinner in that same apartment that we were in for Scream 6, uh, Melissa Barrera's apartment. The core four are having dinner, and the opening to Scream 7 is that all four of them are killed off. I would be completely gagged and sold on no matter what comes after that. In It could be a short uh, or it could be a full length and I don't care what happens after. I would be so gagged. It would be so worth it. And it's not because I dislike any of these people. In fact, I thought to, to me, Chad was the standout in this one. Um, I thought that his character was really endearing. I really liked him. And I felt like coming out of Scream 5 where similarly i was like who the hell is this now i was like oh i'm i'm really invested in this character okay tell me this because this is like a new sort of nomenclature i want to use which is like you know we talked about it on our last episode angela bassett did the thing scream six did scream six do the thing i don't think it did no no no. keep going (laughs) (laughs) oh you wanted me to say more yeah i don't think it did because i don't think that it surprised in any significant way if the only surprise i have is that none of the main characters died i don't think that's a great surprise and scream i think traditionally is all about the twist and turn and the shock Mm. right and and they've had success and failure i mean like i'm holding scream 2 up as a really great example of how to do scream right but honestly those killers were not well developed as killers we barely even know who who knew who they were when they took their masks off uh, and then they had to fill in their backstory and so there's not a lot of perfect examples to hold this up to but i do think that we can get there Speaking of Scream 2, real quick, you had asked me about, I was like, oh my God, what did you think about the Sarah Michelle Gellar cameo? And you were like, Sarah Michelle Gellar cameo, question mark. In the shrine, um, there are these sketches of past victims of ghost Mm -hmm. faces. And you have to understand, when I first saw it, the whole movie, I've done this ever since too. I'm just always looking. Because for instance, and I know what you did last summer, they show a photo of Helen Shivers, Sarah Michelle Gellar's character. So I'm just always looking for like the possibility of callbacks, especially knowing how much this franchise loves its Easter eggs. And there is a sketch in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar's C.C. Cooper, a very beloved C. C. character, appears. Um, and I texted Sarah afterwards and I was like, oh my God. I was like, I just came out of Scream 6 and you're in it and she responded by saying oh (laughs) she's like running to her mailbox to see where the check is yeah like truly that's i as much as i know she loved making scream 2 she's not up on scream i think scream to her is scream 1 2 and 3 which as it should be Can, can i say one more thing because this didn't come up but i do think that and i thought this in five and i really think this in six that Nobody is talking about how absolutely crazy it is that our main character, Sam, is somehow genetically coded to be a serial killer. What kind of comment on, like, mental health is that? And is that a direction that Scream really wants to be going in? And introducing this supernatural element of her ghostly father, who she doesn't even know has never met (laughs) like 
is that a direction that that's not scream to me right and it's also interesting that they like tried it in five and i don't think it was well received and then people were like oh this was you know a mistake that they made in five whatever we love this we love this movie and then they were like no no no, we're doing it again in six um yeah it's like uh what's the meme it's that megan trainer one where i think it's her like on kelly clarkson or something and she's like uh I, I did this thing and I realized people wanted it again. So what did I do? I made more. What is it? Do you know the yes. exact quote? Yes. Yeah. No, I don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's what it was, bringing Skeet Ulrich back for Scream 5 and Scream 6. Although I will say, if you're not following Skeet Ulrich on Instagram, he, along with Timothy Oliphant, also of the Scream franchise, are two of the best aging actors imaginable. Also, what about, uh, speaking on that category real quick, James Marsden. Yeah, what about him? He's aging so well. Obviously. You know, a lot of people think of uh, Paul Rudd as sort of like the best example of like a person that does not age. Uh, And I don't know about that. I think that uh, (laughs) the the guys we're talking about are more worthy of such a title. I do want to say, though, I misspoke. Timothy Oliphant is not on Instagram. So just Google. They're just like recent red carpets he's done. Like this man okay. looks good. Actually, you know what? I will do a Timothy Oliphant appreciation post this week to celebrate our well-aging king. Okay, so before we go, Sean, I know we're going long. It's you and I, so surprise. Um, before we go, let's uh, offer up our ranking um, because I feel like this is a fun conversation right now happening within the canon of Scream, which is that we've got six entries now. Where do we come down? So let's start by both entering our number six, the sixth, our least favorite Scream film. Five. I'm going to go with five as well. Nice. Ding, 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 ding. Uh, okay, so our for our fifth slot. I'm going to go Scream 6. I am going to go Scream 4. Wow. For our fourth slot. I'm going Scream 3. I am going Scream 6. Okay. For our third slot, our number three Scream film. Scream 4. Scream 3. So this is interesting that you and I got our four, three, six out, but on all in different orders, but they came out. <laughs> they came out. They came out. It's like we started off in alignment, and I'm pretty certain we're going to end in alignment, which says something yeah. interesting. So let's just say our number two Scream film. Scream 2. Scream 2. Number one, Scream. Scream. So this is interesting. There's actually some usable data here, right? Which is that we are aligned on the worst Scream film. Uh-huh. And we are aligned on the two best Scream films. And so I think really right now, the conversation is sort of like, where? Three, four, and five? And sort of this disparities within the fandom. But what a fascinating fandom that like, and again, we're just two people, but I do think we actually represent a lot of the conversation out there. Which is that it's it's not universally held. Well, I'm, there's not a Scream ranking that's not going to put Scream as number one. I think that is uh, that is a canon. Like, there's no room here. But I do think some people can argue that they really don't like Scream 2. You know, yes. go do that. You're not going to find that conversation here. Um, it's a Sarah Michelle Gellar film. Uh-huh. It's like, it's totally. getting the high ranking. But I do feel like it's those areas. So <laughs> what I think the question really becomes is as we start to move into like a Scream 7, for instance, is Scream 7 going to enter itself into the canon where it's sort of like in the Michigas of like, where does it rank? Or the two options I think I'd like to see are either it's iconic, like it is the third best Scream film, or can it land at the very end and be iconically bad? 
I think it could go either way. And like my my number three, it's it's wide open. Like the number three spot, Scream 4 can get bumped out of there. There's a huge gap between my spot two and my spot three, right? Yes. Like two, the, the first two to me are untouchable. Yeah, they got problems, but they're untouchable to me. Then there's a chasm and then everything else is up for debate. So that really is the question. Also, interestingly, is there a world in which Kevin Williamson, who famously wrote the first two Scream films, which not for nothing are the two best Scream films, is there a world in which Kevin Williamson comes back to the Scream franchise and sort of gets to see out, oh wait, didn't Kevin Williamson write four? Yeah. So it's one, two, and four. um, And then famously was going to work on the planned trilogy and then after uh, Wes Craven's death did not continue on for reasons I don't know. Are you clear on why? No idea. Me neither. I don't know if it's out there. Anyway, probably is someone shouting on their phone right now. But uh, if Kevin Williamson could return for this current iteration of Scream, because um, he did not work on Scream 5 or Scream 6, that could be interesting. It shows. There's this thing right now in horror, um, especially when it comes to sort of who's running the genre. More often than not, male super fans of the genre who grew up loving horror that is the current we see a lot of that representation in who is writing and directing horror um it's people more often men and they're super fans it's it's giving survivor in that sense right which is that Mm -hmm. like it's very much built around in order to join the legacy you have to kiss the ring um and you have to have like a reverence for the genre that you infuse in you, your perspective has to be informed by the legacy of the genre. I'm willing to try anything. I'm willing to try anything. At the end of the day, all these movies have been fun. And I've enjoyed all of them. Even five. I had a great time. We're going to stay engaged on the Scream franchise. I think it is one of those rare IPs that just there's an energy to the fandom. And I don't want to say it's a non-toxic fandom that doesn't exist. But I have to say, like... When I wade into the Scream fandom, I come away from it having had a good time. Okay, anything else you want to add about Scream before we uh, put a bookend on the conversation? No, just bring back Guelph royalty Nev Campbell. Also, there's a rumor going around about the possible return of Parker Posey's character, Jennifer Jolie, because there is an Easter egg in Six, and the directors of the film were asked in an interview which former character they would like to see come back, their answer, Jennifer Jolie, which can I just tell you, I didn't get the joke until reading these recent headlines about it. What about her name? Yeah. Everybody's moving at their own pace through this world. That moved it up a notch <laughs> on, my, on my ranking because I was like, this is too iconic. But I do think Scream 3 is the most contentious by way of like discussions around Scream because Scream 3 is the biggest swing of the Scream films. Um, and it's, yeah, you're either, that's either for you or you're from the planted against it. I don't think you can like love 3 and love 5 like exactly in the yeah, same with the, in this, with the same reverence. I don't know. Maybe you can. <laughs> well, really fun conversation. I'm really excited for everyone to uh, come back from the break and, and hear this conversation with May Martin. Uh, we discuss Survivor, Titanic, Buffy, the comeback. There's no guest I've had on who I have so much crossover interest in. Anyway, this is also the season four finale of Shut Up Evan. So quick thank you to all of our listeners. I'm going to turn us over now to our commercial break, and then we will check in with May Martin. Today's Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Sunday Riley. I was going to say it's the beauty industry's best kept secret, but it's really no secret. Sunday Riley is the go-to brand for those who want great skin at a great value. 
I'm a huge fan of all of their products, even though my application process could use some refinement, but my current favorite of their offerings is their Good Genes Lactic Acid Treatment. Good Genes deeply exfoliates the dull surface of the skin for instant glow and radiance. As dull, dead surface cells are removed, clarity and smoothness are restored. No wonder it was listed as one of InStyle Magazine's best beauty buys of 2022. Go to sundayriley.com to check out Good Jeans as well as their full range of product offerings. That's sundayriley.com. Shut up, Evan. So excited to have you here. I feel like sometimes I get like nervous before I have a certain guest because I'm kind of like, I don't know if we can talk pop culture. Mm. I don't know like their lexicon. And with you, I feel like we share a similar lexicon. Very similar. Yeah. But that's my only fear is I'm like, have I inflated in my head? I'm like, we're the same person, like we have the same fandom, but I think it's like exactly the right time period, right? I think it's exactly right. And it's funny too, cause it's like, I know you're a Buffy person. I know you're a survivor person, but then you're also a, the comeback person. Mm. See, I'm saying you're also a, the comeback. Cause if you say you're also a comeback person. Yeah. I'm also a, the comeback. <laughs> you and I were chatting last night briefly ahead of today and you brought up the, the word manifestation, um, which is something I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, you and I are both sort of manifestors and and I don't know if that's an active choice that like we chose to be um or if it's something that exists and then we have a consciousness around but like where do you stand on manifestation as a concept and what role does it play in your life it it depends on like the mood I'm in when you ask me about it but sometimes I get really like spiritual and I remember watching this documentary which I think has a disgraced cult leader in it. So we don't watch it anymore. But uh, what the bleep do we know when I was mm-hmm. like 17 and it was about quantum physics and manifesting things and um, how our perception can affect reality and physical matter. So I can get I can go down that road or I can just go down like the Oprah road of like energy and putting it out in the world. And but then probably anything I feel like I've manifested, I could probably pick apart and be like, Oh, it's a direct cause and effect. Right. I definitely believe in positivity feeding back to you. The more I try and put it out there and then it comes back to me, the more encouraged I get to put more of it out there, which is funny because I think when most people think about social media, they think of the toxicity, which obviously exists. Mm. Um, and thinking that like hate begets more hate. Because I used to be a little bit more of a hater on the internet, not mm. like a, the troll level, but yeah. I used to be the kind of person that was more eager to speak about the things I didn't like or feeling like I'm a critic. So let me offer like my insight as to why this thing is not as good as you think it is. And now I'm kind of like, that's what the group chat's for. But the internet is for sharing the positive and finding the good. Yeah. I'm just, I'm I'm a huge fan of so many people. And I think some people start doing this job because they're a mega fan. I was like an obsessive comedy fan. So that hasn't gone away. Like still on my nights off I'm, I want to go see comedy speaking of comedy shows you know you have a viral video going around the internet right now it's at <laughs> a comedy show of yours and it is with you kissing Brett Goldstein and it's not just a peck it's an incredibly passionate kiss mm. why do you think this video has blown up the way it has I think it has like two million views it's the most viewed thing I've ever done in my whole career <laughs> um, I'm thrilled I've never had anyone have any interest in my love life and people are now speculating if Brett and I are 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 boning, which I love. But no, we yeah, we do this live sex show. You gotta come see it and then you'll get it. I promise there's context. Um and he's a handsome man. So we do a lot of making out in that show. But um I don't it sort of escalated. It was just meant to be a new material night. 
and then we came up with a funny name which was that we make love to one another live on stage and then the reaction I don't know what people expected but everyone was like well they're gonna fuck on stage um (laughs) so we felt this like huge amount of pressure to deliver something it's fun when you have a viral moment like that that actually builds intrigue to the work that you're creating because i feel like so often when people have these moments it's something so innocuous and it's kind of like oh like that's not the thing i want to be known for but in this instance it's like no 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 this is part of a thing that you both collectively created so it ultimately benefits like the interest that people gain in the two of you and whether they're speculating about the two of you and your romantic relationship or sexual relationship whatever it's like come see the show and find out it's a good kiss it's a good they it's filmed well yeah. they caught a good moment i think i'd be really embarrassed if it was like the wrong angle or something you know that's actually always such a huge stress point for me when i'm with a celebrity that i really admire that i know i want to get a picture with oh my god and I always think people always look so much better than they often think they do. So I'm less concerned about them because I'm like, I know how to find your good light, whatever. But then like sometimes I'll go back and like see myself in the photo and I'll just be like, God damn it. Like my own narcissism prevents me from wanting to share this incredibly important moment um, for me. But because of my own hangups with my own perception of myself. Yeah. And all all that shit comes up. I made a show where I played myself and being sitting in the edit and having to watch myself every day was like exposure therapy but no I hate photos like I I met Mickey Mouse the other day huge for me (laughs) huge I was so starstruck and um and I hate all the pictures I was like fuck I I just want to look like a like a a stud with Mickey Mouse but I they I, I look I look not great so yeah but then I hate myself for not posting them I posted like I cropped it you know there's things you can do There's things you can do. I took a photo with Jennifer Coolidge recently and we actually, the photo that I ended up posting is two different photos of us that I took her face in one and my face in another and blended them into a single image. Um, I'm not proud, but like, this is the shit that happens. You gotta do what you have to do, yeah. Now, you hold a very unique distinction in being among only a handful of actors that at one time got to quite literally call Lisa Kudrow mother. She played your mother on Feel Good, a co-production between Channel 4 and Netflix that you created and starred in. You know I'm a big fan of this series. Can you talk about the moment that you found out that you got Lisa and what that did for you as someone who, I know you're a fan of the comeback. I imagine you're a fan of much of her her work. I mean, like, Marcy X is, like, one of my absolute favorites. and Romeo and Michelle, Clock Watchers, yes. Friends. Yeah. Heard of that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> what was that moment like for you in knowing that you got her for this show? The whole time we were writing the scripts, we were like, you know, someone like Lisa Kudrow in the part. And we, but we never imagined that she would even read the scripts and then sent them off. And then we're just waiting and waiting. And we had said, if we get a yes, we'll go to this really specific seafood restaurant. This is me and my co-writer, uh, Joe Hampson. I don't know. We were like, that would be celebratory. We'll go to this seafood restaurant so then there was a moment where we got to be like we're going to prawn on the lawn it's called prawn on the lawn Mm. in england and um yeah it was just insane that felt like manifestation it felt like i've been a fan since you know puberty i i wrote a spec script for friends when i was like 13 where i played i think someone's younger sibling and i had like a love story with joey and i didn't realize how fucked up like that i was 13 but i wrote this whole episode so yeah, it was it was wild. And then the build up to to meeting her and, and the fact that she flew all the way to England. And I was so nervous. I was sitting in um 
like the lobby of her hotel. And I was playing with this pen, I guess, nervously. And, and then as we were talking, I was like, yeah, I'm really relaxed, really excited to meet you. And then just snapped the pen in half by accident. <laughs> and it just went like, Fing! and I was like, oh, I'm really, there's a lot of tension. You not only manifested this and got her on the show, but she's playing your mother. So I feel like there's like that added pressure of like, you not only have her here, but like you you want to have a chemistry with her. I can understand why you'd break the pencil. I feel like she could have chemistry with, with anyone because she's so good. Can we break down? There's just a scene from that episode that has always stuck with me. And I'm wondering if we can like inside the actor's studio real briefly. She comes to visit May, your character on Feel Good. And it's clear that you two have a fraught relationship. Um, and she's going to be meeting your girlfriend, George, for the very first time. You are on step nine of a 12-step recovery program, which includes an apology to them. And, and though she accepts your apology, it's clear that she accepts it more to sweep things under the rug than she does, you know, actually processing it. And the two of you wind up on a ghost train together at a local amusement park where you attempt once again to reconcile and it doesn't go well. Your character literally gets off the ghost train and flees. You have always done exactly what you want, so don't blame me if what you want doesn't make you happy. Oh, fuck. oh my God, I'm getting off. Are you on drugs? Until the next morning, uh, where we're at breakfast, it's you, your father, your mother, and George all sitting together. And in that moment, it, it ends on a happy note, which I always think is so interesting, um, in that you sort of sit there and tell me, um, but it seems like what May realizes is that they're not going to have the relationship with their mother that they've dreamed up but if they accept their mother for who she is, that maybe they can have some kind of relationship. I mean, I think a lot of people in adulthood suddenly see their parents as human beings and flawed people in their own right. And you kind of realize that if you adjust your method, you might actually, you know, get get further. And yeah, that's that's totally the thing my I think my character starts bringing up like uh facts about space and science because that that disarms uh Lisa's character and um and that's like a common ground that we're both really interested in, in NASA and space people get their defense up and things are so like especially with family every comment carries on its back the weight of like 30 years of fraught arguments and stuff so if you can get people to let their guard down, then you can maybe make slower incremental progress. There's a great moment in that scene when you first start discussing that with Lisa's character. There's a moment in Linda's eyes where I think she knows what May the character is doing in this moment and then appreciates it. I read a really interesting article about black holes. Um, they found a new one. It's like 12 billion light years away. So I'll, I'll email you the article. Oh, sweetheart. Thank you. It's like Linda thinking, is this bullshit? And then it's that switch to, well, even if that's the case, it's a good place for us to land. Yeah. And I think she's like, you know, I, I want to have myself cryogenically frozen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it amazing to think interstellar travel will be a possibility in our lifetime? Mm. I've decided to have myself cryogenically frozen. Okay. Okay. Mm. Which I, which I think my mom does want to be cryogenically frozen. Weren't um, Barbara Streisand's 
dog cloned as well, I think, which I really respect. If anyone's going to set the precedent for such, it should be Barbara Streisand. It should be Babs, yeah. I'm wondering, to the extent you're comfortable talking about it, I didn't love that Feel Good was canceled. Um, <laughs> I was really heartened that it got that second season, and I was really proud to see the show's story continue on. And I liked watching uh, May and George's relationship in the second season develop. Um as both of them are sort of figuring out their identities, both singularly and then as a couple. And there's such a touching scene in the second season in which, you know, because your character May is figuring out their gender identity and and kind of thinking that George is going to have a harder time accepting it. And then it gives you the surprise as a viewer where George is kind of like, when you're ready to define who you are, you'll, you tell me and, and, and that's what you'll be. More importantly, how, how do you see you? Um, yeah, just me, really, I think. Yeah. But then that feels like not really a thing, or I don't know what that means. Or... I think that that is a thing. That's non-binary, May. I, I do think maybe you should Google it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I probably should Google it. You tell me, and I'll use the right words. So I'm wondering how you felt about not getting that third season and is do you hold out hope for more feel good we we fought really hard for that second season and i'm so glad that we got to do it and yeah in an ideal world i would have done i would have done more for sure but then in retrospect and also my my co-writer is so english and he's into that you know the english model is like sort of mini series like a couple of seasons short seasons and there is something nice about not having to like torture that couple indefinitely and like you'd have to keep breaking them up and then getting them back together so it's it's nice to leave them in a in a good place yeah and it was also it was pretty gruelingly personal so it's nice to have a little break maybe one day i would do a, a movie or something with the same characters i don't know if you think of it as autobiographical semi-autobiographical i don't know where you fall on the nomenclature around it all but at the end of the day like it's something of your story to some extent that you're putting out there and then viewers then watch it and have opinions about it and maybe ask you questions. And there's like this whole second life to putting your work out there in that sense of like people inferring meaning, sometimes where there is meaning, sometimes where there's not, people picking up on things that you didn't maybe even realize you were putting down. How was taking all of that on? I think I was lucky that I'd never done it before. So writing the first season, I didn't I wasn't self-editing at all. And then it was the pandemic. So I, I feel like I made it in a bubble kind of. And especially with like queer representation, there's sometimes a pressure to be, to have characters that are not flawed and are representing everyone. And uh, it's such a specific story. And my character is so flawed that um, I think sometimes people were annoyed about that. Um, it is intense. Because also, yeah, people come to my shows and really feel like they know me and there's no small talk it's right to the deep stuff and it's addiction and family and trauma and um I'm kind of into that I'm not that into small talk and it's but it is kind of bizarre to be like oh, you do know a lot about me you, you do kind of know me it makes me think about something that Sarah Michelle Geller spoke with me about let's pause <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that you speak to Sarah Michelle Geller regularly yeah go on <laughs> it's a joy but she said something about how when fans approach her, it's never like, oh, I love Buffy. It's always Buffy saved my life. 
you are my hero. I was contemplating suicide and then I watched this episode of Buffy and that was the reason why I decided to continue to live. Like these very heavy statements that you no doubt appreciate and they're real and they're and they're and like you said they're not small talk, they're real human interactions. But I imagine sometimes it can kind of be disarming. Um, do you ever have moments where it's like it feels like a lot to take on? I always think people don't give themselves enough credit for saving themselves. It's like this is, you know, you yeah, you you did that. You this is, you know, it, it's so amazing that people connect with the story and stuff. But yeah, I don't think a TV show can save your life really. I think that's you digging deep and. But yeah, it is. It, it is intense, especially. Yeah, when they they want to discuss like some really traumatic events from your life and you might not be in the place to dive into that at the bar. And even sometimes like with fans of Feel Good who come to say Largo or they come to a stand-up show, they're not necessarily stand-up comedy fans. And so they don't really sometimes want to see me do stand-up. Or if I'm doing stand-up that's slightly like too self-deprecating, they get sad for me. Or if it's too, you know, too broad, they wish it was more specific and... Yeah, so that's interesting. You know, you talked about before some of like the pressures of representation and a lot of queer work. And I just think so much about like our youth and how often I had to telegraph representation, but how much I don't think that was always the worst thing. Um, it's not to say that I don't want representation for LGBTQ plus people and authentic representation at that. But I do think there's something to be said about a generation where we found queerness, we we created queerness where there wasn't queerness, which is kind of magical. I think about Buffy, for instance, obviously there was queer representation in the form of Willow and Tara and later Andrew in season seven. It was more than that, wasn't it? It was like, right. Yeah, it was deeper in the fabric that we were finding it in in allegory and stuff yeah i was drawn to yeah hocus pocus or like scary spice you bring up scary spice i remember where i was i was i had a lemonade stand outside my house um when the news hit and this was like back in the day when like mtv would do like breaking news in the middle of their programming and cut to uh, i think it was kurt loader i believe at the time and it was like the announcement that like jerry was stepping back Harry Hallowell, Ginger Spice to fans, after missing two appearances with the free prefab group last week, officially quit the act on Sunday. Spice Girls say they'll soldier on as a foursome, but who among us can't say they won't miss that saucy redhead? It felt like a death. Yeah. And I don't know if we ever really recovered. <laughs> Do you remember where you were when you found out that Jerry would be departing the Spice Girls? I was at an all-girls school at the time, and it was in the, the era of lip syncs, like choreographed lip syncs, and everyone basically had a Spice Girl that they were in the class you had to which I found hard because I was like purely Nick Carter <laughs> I just remember the sort of the weeks around it being really tragic really sad people having to reorganize their lip sync groups I've met uh, Mel B a couple of times and I don't think she knew how huge it was for me and I went to her house and it was like a Spice dream it was like she was wearing leopard print there's pictures of the Spice Girls there's Polaroids of them in the 90s like and I'm trying to stay cool but she's really fun and down to earth and we get on really well but um she does Reiki massage I lay down she takes my shoes off and my eyes are closed and she's like I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing it there's other people there and and uh so I'm just lying there and I feel this heat going up my legs and into my core like a wave of heat as if someone's holding like a blow dryer and she hasn't touched me and I open my eyes and she's like and everyone's like oh my god yeah she just went like like spice energy magic spice energy she's wow she's powerful 
could anyone have done that or is it uniquely her or like people within a certain ether of existence? I think it's just spice energy. Just spice energy. No other energy could penetrate <laughs> the body like spice energy. It was insane. Now, another touchstone of my youth, and I'm curious your proximity to it, is Titanic, uh, which just celebrated Ugh. its 25th anniversary. And what's funny is we're recording this in March. The 25th anniversary was in December. It's still in theaters. Once again, the re-release. Actually, this is technically the re-re-release as the film, I think, has been re-released for the 10th and 15th anniversary, if I'm not wrong, and probably the 20th. And I remember, like, young gay me, obviously so attracted to Leonardo DiCaprio, also so attracted to Kate Winslet, like, just very compelled at, like, both of them and their yeah. chemistry. And Cal. Cal, oh, come on. And despite the fact that, like, that sex scene is, like, way more suggestive than, than it is, you know, over, I mean, but, like... The, the heat, the steam. Oh my God, the hand. Evan, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't want to like claim this and then not be able to back it up, but I think I know every line <laughs> to the movie. I, I think I know every line. And I think there's a video on YouTube of me doing impressions of Cal. It's still going, it's still going. I put the diamond in the coat. I put the coat on her! <laughs> yeah, I, I'm obsessed. I had to do like a school project about the heart like in you know in biology about the valves of the heart and I did a play about these characters going through on a ship and then they and it was just all titanic dialogue but I'd replaced wow I often think about the practicality of the film and from what I've learned and I mean there's so much that's been written and spoken about titanic especially from James Cameron himself and he talks about I've heard from like various actors through the years that he would walk around on the boat and whisper into extras ears, giving them backstories. And this would be like between scenes. Um, I've also heard that there would be like stuff going on, like full blown scenes during like in other locations that as, as things were being filmed to give the real feeling of a life on the boat. And I just think about the fact that like, there's not really anything quite like that in like the aftermath. I mean, we've really in large part moved away from practicality in so many senses. It's why I think movies like Hocus Pocus like continue to just be great mm. because it's like just fun watching these witches like move about and fly on broomsticks yeah. and have it look cheap, but like, but it's almost like charmingly cheap. Cheap's the wrong word. Like it's just charming is the word. Titanic, before the movie came out, I was already kind of entranced by the tragedy itself. Like if I thought about like the dads having to say goodbye to that, like I would just cry and it was just really intense. It felt way more real to me than any kind of modern current events. I was like, that's where I am. I'm on that ship. I don't know. And so then when it came out and the old couple spooning uh, in the bed and yeah, and then all the little details like uh, Cora, where he's like, you're still my best girl, Cora. And then I think later on, Cal grabs her and is like, please, I have a child. What a good line reading. Thank you. Also, another thing I love in Titanic is that like when they hit the iceberg, which I think happens like an hour and a half in or something like that. It's the second VHS. You have to switch VHS. Oh, right. I remember. <laughs> God. I remember when I would record my Buffy episodes because it would be six hour VHSs. And this was when FX acquired Buffy. And I was suddenly like, oh my God, I'm going to be able to record all of Buffy and I would have to like line it up because sometimes an episode would be like an hour and one minute. 
And then I would like just panic. And I'd be like, okay, well, this tape's only going to have five episodes. Anywho. Um, I remember that when it when the boat first strikes the iceberg, in any other director's hands, I feel like it would have been this huge crash. And in Titanic, it's just yes. like every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, they're going to be fine. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Oh, because that's what would have been so horrific about it. Just things carrying on for a while. Everybody vaguely being like, is something wrong? Like, yeah, I'm in a writer's room right now for my, I'm developing like my next show. And I've never really done a writer's room process because I'm used to just being with my friend, Joe. And the other day I had like an out of body experience because I kind of came out of my body and realized what I'd made everyone do, which was everyone was crowded around my laptop. And I was showing them a scene from Angel from the crossover episode where Buffy goes and he gets a soul for a day and then he has to erase <sighs> this memory and I was showing them her being like it's not enough time and crying and their goodbye and then someone was like why are we why are we watching this and I was like I don't know sorry I don't know why we're watching it like it felt important <laughs> it felt like in the moment it was motivated by something in this story we were telling but actually it had nothing to do with anything and I was just doing monologues about how she should have gotten Emmy like how did she never get an Emmy you know, it's one of those things where if the show existed today, it would be so different because it would be seen as prestige television. Yeah. It's one of those shows that's not like retroactively praised. It was very beloved. It was making all of the lists that it continues to be on today back then. Yeah. But that's the the missing ingredient for me that thank God people like you and I exist in order to say that it's like, yes, this show is great. Joss Whedon made a great show, blah, blah, blah. But Sarah Michelle Gellar is the performance that like lifts this all up. This is like that which it all stands on. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the crossover because I love that episode, first of all. This was right after the spinoff had just begun. Angel was trying to establish itself as a show. Mm -hmm. Buffy was trying to establish the fact that it could continue on without two of its leads. And yet they made this decision to be like, well, the fans want it. Let's just do it. So Angel comes to Sunnydale. Then Buffy follows him back to Los Angeles. Um, we'll have to we'll have to insert a clip of it here because that final scene. Oh, please. No, no, it's not enough time. We don't have a choice. It's done. How am I supposed to go on with my life? Knowing what we had, what we could have had. You won't. No one will know but me. Everything we did. It never happened. It did. It did. I know it did. Heartbreaking. I remember weeping and then rewatching and I was like, it's as good as I remember. Yeah. I'm, I mean, he's trying to squeeze a tear out. Sarah Michelle Gellar just bawling beautifully. And even I think Faith is like torturing Wesley in that crowd. Like it's all, I mean, the whole Faith Buffy tension was huge for me. Faith was a big deal for me. And also I remember uh, when they brought Faith back at the tail end of season seven, as things were wrapping up, I was sort of like, I don't, I mean, what I always really wanted was Cordelia to come back because Cordelia was my favorite character, but I had sort of accepted the fact that that wasn't going to happen. So I was like, if there's one thing I need for the show to close out, because all the fans were clamoring for Angel to come back. I never really like, don't get me wrong. I think Buffy and Angel have like some of the most remarkable chemistry. I mean, Leo and Kate level chemistry, but I always loved the chemistry between Sarah and Eliza. I felt like their chemistry was like electric. And mm -hmm. I thought that they made each other better actors when they were in scenes together. So I when agree. it was announced that she was going to be coming back for those final five, I was like, okay, they can end the show now. Yes, completely. 
the episodes where they swap bodies. I mean, huh. there's nothing that Sarah Michelle Gellar can't do. She's asked to do so much in that show. And it's funny because I always say I think Sarah Michelle Gellar is as good as Meryl Streep. And some people will uh, they'll laugh when I like make that comment, thinking like I'm making like one of my evanisms and like being, you know, emphatic, like too emphatic. And I'm like, no, but like I'm actually just stating a truth that I hold. I just think that she has been robbed of opportunities. There are so many times I see roles today and I'm just like, that should have been Sarah. I always think about my dream is to write something and cast it exclusively with people from that era and like get, I mean, Joshua Jackson is like top of my Ugh. list. I want to write like a whodunit or something and only cast the pantheon of gods in my brain. Do you remember when the WB used to do like those big promos that they would pay for and they would have all of the actors come together and it would be like Dawson's Creek, Buffy, Seventh Heaven, Charmed. Yes. And it truly felt like, I guess what people today would call like the MCU, like that was our MCU, which was like, oh my God, like Joshua Jackson interacting with Sarah Michelle Gellar, interacting with Shannon Doherty, interacting with Jessica Biel. And it's like, oh my God, like this was our surrogate family. Completely. And the I know what you did last summer Ugh. things and then the little nods in the Scream movies, the sort of weird crossovers. And yeah, I live for it. Mm, me too. So another obsession that you and I share is Survivor, mm -hmm. which is currently airing its 44th season. What originally captivated you about Survivor? I remember when it came out, we knew it was a big event and my, my whole family watched it and it was a bonding thing with me and my mom. And it's like human chess. And so my mom was just passionate right away about like the inner workings of the tribe. And, and so we watched maybe the first eight seasons or something as a family every week. And then I probably fell off for a bit and then have since rewatched probably multiple times all the seasons. Like in the pandemic, I went through them all. Brings out people's true nature. And it's like hero journeys. It's people evolving. I, I'm really interested in how the games evolved. I have strong opinions. Like, I, And Jeff is just... He's like King Solomon. He's our voice. He says what we want him to say. He's just, he's an incredible host. He is. It's so easy to point out his flaws. And I mean, I do that quite often on my other podcast, Drop Your Buffs. But at the end of the day, it's like, he keeps this train on the tracks. Yeah. And he is very like intentional about all of the changes to the game he makes. He cares about this show evolving. I'll tell people that don't watch, um, oh yeah, season 44 just started and people's eyes always just double in size. That show is still on. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. And it's kind of like gonna <laughs> be on for another 44, thank God. And yeah, I have qualms with it and its evolution me as too. I sense perhaps. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> but, like, but at the end of the day, it's like, I would rather survive. I would rather watch new episodes of Survivor, even if I think it's a shell of the show that I once fell in love with. It's still a worthwhile endeavor. And I still find things to love. And even the things I don't love, I love not loving those things. I felt really emotional in Winners at War and I had a, yeah, a lot of a lot of qualms about some of the game structure and things and the fire tokens, Ugh. all kinds. It was a bit of a mess, but just seeing those players that I grew up watching and, and how much they've been through and yeah, it captures your inner child and wanting adventure and, and Jeff does care, you know, and, and so many hosts would would have an earpiece in and, and he's, he's done, he never has an earpiece. I haven't listened to it yet, but on his podcast, I heard that he has a section where people can say why he's a piece of shit or something. And then he says mm -hmm. either they're right or wrong, but I like that. I respect that. 
Yeah, I feel like he's very open to the idea that he is imperfect. Mm. And I think that it sort of makes him infallible in a sense because it's like he is willing to admit the fact that he can make shitty decisions. But he's made a lot of good ones. I always go back to there's a horrible moment that takes place in season 34, Game Changers. A gay contestant outs another uh, trans contestant on the show. And I actually feel like Jeff handles that whole moment remarkably well. You should be ashamed of yourself. I am a little bit. You should be ashamed of yourself for what you're willing bit. to do to get yourself further in a game for a million dollars. It's like you're playing with people's lives at this point. Do you remember when Russell Hance's nephew was on and was having a meltdown and then Jeff just calls him over? He kind of de-escalates. He starts massaging his shoulders. Yes. He's like a... I was going to say a youth pastor, but in a good way, not in a creepy way. Like he's what you want a youth pastor to be. Yes. Because it's like, he's the idea of like, if, if our idea of of religion (laughs) wasn't so tainted by the realities of it, it's like, that's what you envision it. I think he's a good role model. Yeah. And, and I, I kind of miss the like stunt casting where they would get someone truly psycho on and, or put someone like really, um, homophobic on a tribe with the game. Like I kind of miss that, even though I know it was really bad, but, um, yeah, I do. I'm interested in uh, Caroline in the new season. Me too. I'm loving her. Although she's sort of like a self-identified weirdo, mm-hmm. and I prefer someone who like I want to call you, tell you that you're a weirdo, yeah. not have you tell me you're a weirdo. But you know that scene in season two of the comeback when Valerie goes to the improv, and the improv teacher is like, "Show me, Valerie. Don't tell me. Show me, Valerie. Yeah. Stay in the scene. Yes. Don't don't tell me what you're gonna do. Show me what Show you're it. gonna do. Yeah. Okay." I want Survivor players to stop telling <laughs> yeah. me how they're going to play the game and show me. Yes. Show me, Valerie. In the pandemic, I dipped into Survivor Australia and I actually loved the length of the season. I love how long they're out there. I love there were a couple of amazing characters. I liked it. I think it might be better. Mm-hmm. Mm. So wait, did you watch the finale of season one of Australia? Yes. I would put that up there in the top five moments of all time. It was insane. And then also the... I mean, season two was the one with it. Who's the guy who then came back to play? I'm on season two right now. Okay, okay, okay. It's it's incredible. For those that don't know, they're currently airing uh, Heroes vs. Villains season right now, and I'm unable to watch it live because I'm not up to date. And for people that don't know, Survivor Australia is like three times as many episodes and even longer and 54 days. Yeah, which that's what I want. I want them starving, and then when their loved ones come, I want them weeping, like... Yeah. It heightens everything when they're out there for longer amounts of time. It allows them to build deeper bonds. It allows them to miss the people back home more. It allows them to really go through the motions of survival. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay, wait. One other survivor-related question. The theme song is hugely important to me. I binge watched uh, the 40, 40 seasons in COVID and I loved like the nuances and how the theme song would change over over time. It would sort of be connected to the theme of each season. In season 36 of Survivor, they finally did away with the theme song um, for no obvious reason. Do you have any feelings about them getting rid of the theme song? Yeah, it's devastating. Yeah. Was it appropriation? I don't know. I, I don't know. I miss it. That's interesting. So do you think there's a... There's there's a world in which it's like, but would they realize that that many years down the line? I know there is some, I mean, the tribal stuff is complicated, but this season they've got like a weird medieval theme that doesn't work at all. So I don't know. Yeah. One more thing to say as well that um, I've recently discovered that Lisa Kudrow is a huge Survivor fan, uh, as is like 
Clea Duval, who, who I'm just getting to know. And so we're, we're putting together like a survivor watch party that I think is going to be pretty epic. And I think you should come. Thank you. I'm holding you to that. <laughs> wow. Just the thought. Actually, this makes so much sense. I obviously don't know Lisa, but I listen to any interview Lisa does. And her brain chemistry uh, makes sense that she would love Survivor. It makes so much sense. I mean, she is a studier of the human condition. Valerie yes. Cherish is like made up of her sort of observations of actors and reality TV and whatnot. So this makes so much sense. And also yeah. the comeback was loosely built out of those first few seasons of Survivor and the phenomenon that was Survivor. Yeah, and she is friends with Mike White. So I remember, so I think that was big when he went on and and yeah, she's got an analytical brain. She, she's into it. And she loves wow. the Real Housewives as well. Are you someone that touches the Real Housewives? Haven't been there, but open to it. I feel like you're better to keep on your Survivor journey, um, especially because you're aware Survivor UK is launching this fall. I'm skeptical. They've tried before. Oh. I mean, I'm I, I'm going to watch it, of course, but um, it's so garish that like the British reality TV. They're going to get them drunk or something. I don't know. I feel like they're going to mm. they're going to mess with it. But we'll see. Did you fuck with the Traders UK? I can't wait. I haven't seen it. Okay, because that changed my life. In watching The Traders UK, I was introduced to this idea that British reality television is very, very a very different breed than any other kind of reality TV. So I understand what you're saying as far as like, it's not as simple as like, Survivor Australia is replicating the format and it's just the same show, but with accents. I can yeah. understand that maybe British Survivor would not be like the same, same show. I'm worried that someone's some British producer is going to get their grubby hands on it and be like, yeah, what, what if we throw in a couple of, you know? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so before we deviate from Survivor, I asked you last night who your favorite three Survivor contestants were. I believe you said Parvati, Rob, and Ty. Um, I tried to get Ty, but I do not know Ty, but I did get um, one of the two of them to call in with a question for you. Fuck off. May, it's your girl Parvati from Survivor. I am a huge fan of your work from The Flight Attendant, and I cannot wait to come see you perform at the Largo in California. I am kind of freaking out right now. Um, and I have a question for you. I heard you're a big Survivor fan. So I would like to know... Would you do better on an old school season of Survivor or a one of the new school seasons, the shorties, 26 day season? So 39 day or 26 day with all the bells and whistles, which season would you do better at and why? I love the sound of her voice. Oh, the best. I'm, I'm dying. Um, Parvati, thank you so much for the question. Absolutely uh, old school. You know, when, when people would look for idols and stuff and everyone would be so shocked, like no one had thought of it yet. I'd be I'd be out. I, I never understand why people aren't waking up at the crack of dawn every day and sneaking out before everyone's awake and, and looking for idols. So I'd be I'd be doing that. And uh, I'd be I think I could form stronger relationships with people who weren't anticipating my subterfuge as much as they currently are. And also everyone's a super fan now that plays. And I, I think um, I'd be, I'd be mirroring people's energy. I say that I would, I would be so hoodwinked by like a Parvati led alliance 
I'd be so easily like I would <laughs> I'd relinquish an immunity idol at tribal council to Parvati in two seconds if she was like who wouldn't <laughs> oh my god if anyone acted a bit mad at me at tribal council I'd be like oh, I'm so wait what I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I will say the one thing that always surprises me to your point about why don't people wake up and look for idols the fact that people go out and play the game now and don't know how to make fire I'm like, have you watched this show before? This is not only a part of the survival component of the show, but if you make it to the final four, there is literally a challenge where the sole purpose is who can make fire faster. So yeah. you have all these people being like, I 3D printed some of the games and preparation, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but can you make fire, bitch? Can yeah. you make fire? Do you remember the season? Maybe it was China or something where someone made a fire with their glasses. I'm like, it's interesting we haven't seen that much again. We haven't seen that. I'm glad you're watching 44. I have high hopes for it. Um, there's talk from, you know, production that this is going to be an especially good season. And there are six queer people um, openly identifying LGBTQ plus people on this season, which I think is a record. And it's nice to see the show um, look a little bit more like the world as it continues to move forward. Again, credit to them for like actually reacting to um, feedback. I mean, late, um, but better late than never. And um, I'm rooting for a lot of these people out there. Um, I mentioned the comeback briefly. I know you love the comeback, obviously you know and have worked with Lisa but I'm wondering specifically with your lens as a comedian um, what is it about the comeback that makes it not only so funny it's obviously so funny but so singular in its in its humor I think I, I always like things that can unexpectedly turn tonally when you're not when you're not expecting it and deliver like an emotional gut punch and Lisa's so good at that and uh I like that it's it's commenting on this industry and on on people, but it's not in any way like winking at the camera or ironic or cynical, really. It's a, you know, she's a good person. Her husband's a good person. You're rooting for them. It manages to be a big, broad comedy, with but with a level of earnestness that I, I like people who, you know, when people aren't afraid to try and make you cry a bit. I love that you point out that detail about Valerie where it's like she's in a good marriage. She has a husband who loves her and she has a good life and she has enough money to get by. She's not desperate to, she, she well, she is desperate, but in different ways than the obvious ones. I feel like there are so many choices that the show makes that subvert your expectation where a lot of people watch the show and be like, I just feel so bad for her. She's so sad. And I'm like, there's a lot of ways in which Valerie wins consistently. She's got Mickey, who's there for her through and through. She's got Mark. She's like, she has this infrastructure of a life and she has success. She's won a People's Choice Award at the, in the very first, you know, going into the first episode. Like, yeah, yeah. I like the fact that it's layered as far as like, she's just not some loser. Yeah, she's just so relatable. Not to put you on the spot, but do you have a favorite moment or like a moment that comes to mind? And I'll tell you one for me if it, to give you a minute to think of it. But like, there's a moment in the first season um, when Valerie's stepdaughter, Francesca, who I believe is like 13, 14 years old, has a pool party while Valerie's not home. And she gets back and all these kids are like running about in the backyard. And she starts chasing, <laughs> she starts chasing this one little boy. And and he starts running towards the fence and she goes, who, who are you? What's, What's your, your name? name? What's your name? Kevin Costner. 
Chambers. All right, all right. Just come and back. it's just always <laughs> stayed with me so that whenever someone in a conversation that I have now, someone will mention, I'll be like, oh, who are you going with? And they'll be like, Jennifer. And I'll be like, Aniston. Like, it's one of those jokes that I always think about because I'm like, it's just so fucking funny and bizarre. Um, are there any moments that come to mind for you that are like just great moments in the comeback? I like when she goes to, is it Jane's house to convince her to come back and, and make the documentary and I just I really like their dynamic and the awkwardness of of that and hearing about hearing about Jane's documentary that she's making the hidden women of Treblinka I yeah think about called. like lesbians and <laughs> in the holocaust yeah <laughs> and just it's such a bizarre dynamic that they have that that's the one that can't, comes to mind I remember the hidden women of Treblinka making me laugh <laughs> I love those moments when Valerie switches from she's like wanting to like dignify this thing, even though she doesn't understand it. And so she's like, oh yeah, she hears the word Holocaust. So in her mind, it's like, oh, well that's legitimate. Yeah. And then she hears lesbian and she's like, oh wow. It's combining these two things that she knows that she stands behind. Yeah. You know, she supports lesbians and she wants to honor the Holocaust. And so in her mind, it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's amazing. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's so Valerie. What? They, they gotta do another season. If we're getting season two of Anne just like that, I think we're getting season three of the comeback. It just is odd because everyone involved expresses the desire to do more. And the fact that they did a second season 11 years later means like they can kind of do it whenever. Mm -hmm. And it's there's reason to believe it would only become more popular with like, you know, meme culture now. 100%. When Lisa's ready, they'll hit go. It feels more like a when, not if. Yeah, I hope so. I really hope so. Do you have any dream scenarios for the show? I mean, I know it's been spoken about by Dan Bukatinsky, I think, who ex who is a, a, an EP on, on the series who expressed interest in bringing Valerie to Broadway. I was just going to say, I'd love to see her, um, yeah, in a, in a theater show and having to roll with the punches with a live audience there. Yeah. And just seeing that, like, glimmer of fear in her eyes as things are going wrong and having to <laughs> improvise yeah I like the idea of her stepping into Chicago as Mama Morton because I feel like that's kind of the role that like they bring in people for now um yeah yeah I, yeah I don't see Valerie as a Roxy Hart um but then again I didn't see Pamela Anderson as a Roxy Hart and that was an incredible performance so yeah I think anything that Valerie and just the culture of theater and theater people feels like a great step for Valerie. Yes, completely. All the kind of the like, you were marvelous and flowers and... Yeah. I want to ask you about your friendship with Elliot Page. I mean, so many people out there love Elliot and have loved watching his journey and um, huge fans of Umbrella Academy, obviously. Um, what has that been like developing this friendship with Elliot? And obviously I know it's a personal relationship, so I don't want, I'm not telling you to like, hey, tell me everything about your friendship. Um, but I am curious, just like being friends, you're in the public eye, he's in the public eye, and what you've got, like, gained from this friendship and what it means to you. We, we have a lot in common and actually met when we were like 19 in uh, in Toronto. Didn't really know each other. And then I think he reached out years, like a decade later, um, having seen some stand-up or something. And then, yeah, we just, he, oh, he's just so funny, so kind, such an inspiration. It's really good to have someone that you can touch base with when you're navigating like gender stuff or what or whatever. And um, yeah, I think it's just a mutual, a mutual admiration club there. Do you remember like when Elliot first came out publicly, I felt like from my perspective, he was just met with such 
overwhelming acceptance. And and I'm not saying that there that might not have been the case universally, but it just felt overwhelmingly positive. And I just remember thinking how exciting it was to see something like this happening and to have it be received with so much excitement and seeing so many affirming messages on his Instagram page, for instance, just being like, hi, Elliot. Um, and I'm just wondering from your perspective, like what that's like to see that today, not just the coming out that we that we know about coming outs, but I think there's a shift in the reaction from the public in terms of coming outs, which maybe like decades ago or even more recently might have felt more risky. And it's not to say they don't come with risks today, but we have examples like Elliot that tell people that you can be yourself publicly and be beloved for being yourself. Yeah, I felt really emotional and really relieved that uh, people were so receptive but then it's tricky like visibility is not the same as progress and so we're seeing now like how tenuous these steps forward are and 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 the risk of like really sliding backwards in terms of trans rights so it's like I don't know it's I think it's a lot of weight on his shoulders too to be like a, a public person like that uh yeah but so yeah it is the reaction was good but also it's it's a scary time i want to read something from uh the 2022 profile you did in gq i don't know if you brought it up or they brought it up but you were talking about your top surgery and you said quote it's not it's so not the most interesting thing about me it's just one facet of who i am but i also know that visibility is super important so it's always a question of oversharing and over focusing on something that's ultimately just one small part of me mm. i think that quote is so fascinating and first of all i i, I that resonates for me so deeply and i think it will for so many listeners this idea that you want to talk about this thing because it is a part of you, but you don't want it to become the pull quote and the thing that the only thing that people take away. And we live in a culture of pull quotes, right? And so I, I that yeah. balance that one must strike, especially from a marginalized community when speaking about aspects of that are in world conversations to the community. Um you know, it's like you, you want to speak about these things because there are people with curiosities that maybe can have their questions answered. But it's also, again, not your job to answer people's questions. You are not, you know, a piece of science with which people should study. <laughs> I'm just wondering how you rationalize that very difficult balance. It's kind of like what you're speaking to with Elliot, where it's like visibility for public figures, especially marginalized figures. Um, it's so difficult because of the pedestal that so many people uh, put you all on and the expectations that we have for because so many of it we didn't have a lot of it growing up we want more of it but then in having more of it maybe we we I'm saying the collective we um, we put a pressure on wanting it to be a certain way and it always is the the pull quote and you never want to be seen to be being like coy or uh, you know guarded and or like you're ashamed of it in any way so you don't want to talk about it for that reason so I yeah I always want to be open but it is as it's, it's just in interviews really as soon as you say something it's sort of out of your control and they can cut it up however they want and make it the the main thing and then it fuels this narrative of like well they never stop talking about identity and like identity politics and but I feel lucky that I have stand-up and things like like the stand-up special coming out because it's then it's my own words I'm talking about myself and the things I find funny and uh you know, it's just one small part of an hour of stand up about like puberty and life in the world. So I'm lucky, like it must be harder to be an actor where you don't have you don't have control as much over your own narratives that you're you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You just have those interviews where, yeah, at least I get to do stand up and every night 
you know, in front of a live audience and it's unfiltered and like young people who are so stressed and contact me about their identities and the labels. And it's like, it doesn't, you know, yeah, definitely, you know, take your time and figure it out. And it is important, but it doesn't have to be the, you know, also what are your hobbies and what are your, you know, who are your friends and, and your relationships and like, yeah, it, it doesn't have to be the most important thing. It makes me think about your book. Uh, Can everyone please calm down a guide to 21st century sexuality in which you talk about the fact that like there are pros and cons to labels. Like there are good things about labeling and there's ways in which it allows, you know, people from a certain community to find other people within that community. Um, but then there are cons too, right? Like associations people have or the ways in which people box people in, because of those labels. So again, and this is something I love about your book, but it's like that argument that like labels have a necessity, but they are not the only necessity. It's the idea that, and also labels can change. And so it's that understanding that maybe someone likes a label one day, doesn't like it the next day, might come back to it again, might deviate from it, might feel like they sort of fit into it. All of that, yes. All of that, check, works, yes, cosign. Yeah, I think like label yourself if it's helpful to you and, and it helps you find community or fight for your, your rights. Um, but yeah, don't do it for anyone else or to make yourself more palatable or understandable for someone else because all these things are just made up. Language is so not adequate in expressing the human experience and the nuances of it in any way. It's it's so limiting. I remember one when I, I used to work at a website called Mike.com. I was a style reporter there. And this was when there was this huge boom in trans models on the runway. And one thing I would always try and ask whenever I spoke to a trans model is it's like, do you want that headline, trans model, blah, 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 walks at blah, blah, blah. Is that helpful or hurtful? And sometimes they would say helpful. And sometimes they would say, I'd, ra I'd rather not be a part of the piece. Sometimes, because there is a lot of history that's being made when a lot of these people step out. Not everyone wants the title of historic. Some people actually just want to be a part of this industry that they've so long emulated. And so to what you just said, it's like, allow people the autonomy to be the rulers of how their story is told. I try and do that as much as possible in how I talk about people and, you know, what identifiers not only do they want to use, but do they want even they might say, oh, I identify as this, but they might not want that to be how they're spoken about in the story necessarily. Because to your point, it's like they might want to talk about Titanic. Your sexuality shouldn't be any bigger a part of you than than a straight person's sexuality. And you, it's like it's a weird thing to constantly reference as a prefix to someone like who who they are sleeping with <laughs> like it's yeah but I, I think uh with like with feel good it was always described as a queer love story and I was like it does it is just a love story and uh like like you and I you know we were entranced by Titanic and and totally able to relate to that love story and you know even though it wasn't representative of our experiences like you know, let's not underestimate straight people and their ability to connect with mm. a story that isn't exactly theirs. Like you don't want someone to go, oh, that's not for me. It's called, you know, it's a queer love story. So I guess that's not going to, you want everyone to watch it and enjoy it. And in fact, my experience with Feel Good was that it was much more a story about love within addiction. Totally. But yes. Um, okay, two last questions before I let you go. You have this special May Martin SAP. Is it SAP or SAP? SAP. Okay, I just want to make sure because it's all caps. <laughs> um, coming out Netflix March 28th. What can people expect from this special? And this is super exciting. It's really silly. It's um, It kind of jumps all over the place, but it's just coming out of lockdown. And uh, I guess about the struggle between optimism and pessimism, when we have so much information about how shitty the world is and how do you, how do you stay 
uh, positive, but it touches on all kinds of things. I filmed it in Vancouver and it was super fun. And I had, a, I got all these trees on the stage and um, yeah, I really hope people like it. Well, I definitely want to encourage people to check that out. And in addition, go back and watch Feel Good. I believe it's 12 episodes total, right? Yeah, yeah, you could watch it in an evening. I was going to say, you can really power through it and it is an absolute worthwhile watch. There's some phenomenal performances and I, I worked at Netflix during the premiere of season one and it was such a joy working on the queer team to receive the gift that wow. is the show and be like, I get to work on something that I'm really excited about. Thank you so much. That means a lot, Evan. Thank you so much. Of course. I think about it all the time too. The, I also think about the lighting in Feel Good is something I think a lot about. I feel like uh. Feel Good was one of those early, like bisexual lighting became so in vogue over these past few years. But one of my early references to like what bisexual lighting looks like was feel good. Yeah, that's Ali Pankyu, season one. So good. Yeah. We sort of circled this topic throughout our conversation, which is what's what's going on politically in this world right now. I need not tell anyone listening to this podcast that there is this relentless onslaught of transphobic rhetoric and proposed legislation that, I mean, speaking honestly, seeks to eradicate trans people's existence. We have to speak about it for real. I mean, that's what these lawmakers are seeking to do. It's no longer just scaling back the rights, there's explicit language out there about seeking to remove trans people from existing in this world. Um, yeah. And I bring it up to say, I understand, it's like, how do we really even talk about this? And it, it, it's a whole other conversation, but I'm just wondering, there's been a lot of discourse within our community right now, um, pressuring LGBTQ plus celebrities, or looking at a lot of these, um, you know, these big businesses that that put forth these huge pride campaigns and saying, hey, you speak out in June, why aren't you speaking out now? And I feel two ways about it. I mean, I, I don't know how to feel about it. I, I, I don't expect Bank of America to make a statement about trans people's right to exist. It would be lovely if they would, but I understand why that's not on their agenda. But I also understand the seed of that, which is a frustration from our community about wanting our community and those who support us to show up and speak out in moments like this. I'm wondering, I'm not where you come down on it because I don't think it's that simple, but how you're feeling about it rather. I'm feeling really nervous about it all and, and uh, upset about it all. I'm, and, and I mean, American politics is pretty new to me. I just moved to the States a year ago. So um, I had an understanding of British politics and, and trans policies and stuff, which are, it's, it's, it's pretty dire over there too, but this has been, this has been crazy to see it amping up and, and to see the parallels between the abortion stuff. It's all about like bodily autonomy. And uh, yeah, it's always frustrating when there's a radio silence about a certain community. And, and, and I don't know people, you know, I, I post, I, I post about it a lot, but I, I, I wonder how much good that does. And I, you know, you really want allies and big high profile, you know, straight people talking about it would be great i think and that the consequences will affect everyone and you know if we slip in that direction to your point i think it's incumbent upon people like me that are in positions where we get to talk to people especially as you say those outside the community this makes me think i had ben aldridge on recently and it was soon after uh my dad died and i, I was in the thick of thinking about grief and i was like hey grief is something that i should talk about with my guests more because everyone has either experienced grief or will. And it makes me think about this, which is to say that it's like, this is something that everyone can be asked about if in a situation like this, and, and maybe they have nothing to say on it, but at least like put the microphone in their face and say, 
How are you feeling about these things? It's not necessarily about needing them to make an Instagram post about it, but in situations when you're having a conversation with the person, are you aware of these the, this legislation being proposed right now? Do you know what took place at CPAC? Um, just putting these headlines in their face and asking them to react to it. You're not trying to like force anything out of them, but there's a world in which it's like, maybe this news is not penetrating um, certain pockets of our society. And if, if nothing else, if we can get that information out there. Get the information out. And also the more sort of high profile people are just publicly supporting trans people, the more, hopefully the more embarrassed people will be to, to be, you know, waving Dave Chappelle's banner or something. You've got that. You've got to make it uncool and point out that it's all the coolest people are on the right side of things, and uh, people need to be, yeah, more vocal about it. I think it makes me think about Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union's speech that they just did at the NAACP Image Awards, which, like, I felt like did not get enough coverage. Where I was like, it was an incredible mm. speech, um, and yeah. in support of their daughter Zaya, but also talking about Black trans people and and the violence that they face, and and amplifying that message to a room full of people, some of whom do not know about these issues. And so, conversely, too, again, incumbent on all of us, but like to amplify these moments where figures are coming out and speaking about trans, non-binary, anyone in this community in a positive light and, and showing their support, we can amplify those messages too and say, hey, like Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union, like more of this, please. I had first moved to LA, like I just moved here uh, and it was the Netflix is a joke festival and I just had top surgery. I was feeling, you know, vulnerable. I was just starting like testosterone and stuff. And as, as I landed in this world where Chappelle's headlining the festival and, uh, you know, when he was attacked, which was awful, the first thing he said was that was a trans man. And I was like, what is happening? Like, I just, it was a really hostile environment and, and it, it makes you paranoid because you're like, who, you know, are people just too embarrassed to, to say something? It's hard if it's something that affects you personally, you're gonna be emotional talking about it. You're already at a disadvantage because you're like, you get flustered. And so it's always helpful when people who are not trans are, are talking about it because hopefully they can kind of, I get, I get stressed, you know? Of course. Thank you so much. Thank you for speaking about it here um, with me now. I, I, I know it's on the minds of so many people out there and of course, so many people listening and, and it's important that we talk about these things and that, you know, people that don't know start to learn more and seek out the information to understand how we fight these atrocities. Yes. Also, a little bit of a 180, but I do want to plug briefly your appearance in season two of The Flight Attendant. Actually, not a brief, but a big 180. <laughs> um, but I fucking love The Flight Attendant. <laughs> and it just occurred to me that I hadn't brought it up. So I just want to mention that here now. I know Parvati mentioned it, but Flight Attendant season two, must watch. Uh, and I, I mean, no spoilers, but my God, May, the shit you do <laughs> on The Flight Attendant. And feel good, you have the ghost train. And then in um, yeah. Flight Attendant, you've got the Ferris wheel. <sighs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gotta keep you away from amusement parks. Filming that ghost train scene with Lisa will will always be just one of the... I think it was my birthday. Just going... We spent the whole day just going around, round and round. I mean, metaphorically and physically. Yeah, totally. And also, she had to not flinch whenever there was a jump. <laughs> and watching her do that was incredible. Yeah, it was very funny. Incredible. Um, all right. Well, I want to encourage everyone to check out the special, check out Feel Good, check out The Flight Attendant. And also you're touring right now, as you said. So you have a show coming up at Largo. Um, can people go on your website to get full information about your tour dates? Yeah, I'm mostly I'm mostly in L.A. right now. But yeah, definitely. Always. I do like a monthly show at Largo. And then I do shows with I do these sex shows with Brett Goldstein. <laughs> so if anyone wants to come and see what actually goes down at one of those, that would be great. 
Thank you for coming here today. Thank you for allowing me to go deep or us to go deep on Buffy and the comeback and Survivor and so much more. Um, I've wanted you on this podcast for a long fucking time and I am glad we finally made it happen. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.